Hey everybody, thanks for coming out for Unaffiliated Politics with your hosts Jared and Mike. Uh, Today we're going to be talking a little bit about the wealth gap. Mike, I know this is an issue that's near and dear to your heart. Do you want to get us rolling on why this matters? Yeah, so I I mean, I've heard people for years just talk about how it's it's almost non-existent or you know, trickle down economics where you need that money dispersed or, or, or greater breaks at the top for it to trickle down. We could debate trickle down economics uh, at a later date, but I do think that it's an absolute sham. So I did a lot of research for this. I'm going to start with one from the World Wealth and Income Database. So it's just total share of income that's earned by the top 1%, Jared. Now, I just want to outline the countries that are involved in this before we uh, proceed, just so I can get some consensus with you here. So if we take it from the top and, you know, we have the United States, Canada, Italy, Germany, the United Kingdom, France, and Japan. Now, would you agree that none of these are radical socialist countries. I mean, you could debate some of the European countries having socialist-esque policies, I guess, but none of them are radical. Not They're, they're not communist Russia. They're not uh, Nazi Germany. They're, these are none of these evil things, right? You would agree with that? Yeah, sure. Perfect. So starting in 1975, Jared, the top 1% earned roughly in all of these countries between 7% of the total income and 8%. Right about on the nose, Germany led the way at 10%. This was in 1975. In the 40 years that have transpired since then, Jared, up to 2015, France, Japan, and the United Kingdom all hover at around 8 or 9%. That's total income earned by the top 1%. The United Kingdom, Canada, and Germany hover around 12%, all almost at exactly the same number. Do you want to take a guess of where you think the United States is, Jared? What, it's the top 1% or top 10%? Earned by the top 1%. I do have something with the top 10%. Oh, top 1%? Well. What is that, like 10, 10, 13%? I don't know. What is it? It is 17%. So the total income is more than doubled for the top 1% of earners, just as a share into total U.S. income. It has more than doubled in the United States over the last 40 years, while you have nowhere near that growth in any of the other countries that I've outlined here. So in addition to that, Jared, I got a couple other quick hit facts for you here. Total gross income in relation to the 10%. So that's what you had asked me, right, Jared? The richest 10% of families in this country have gone since 1989. They controlled 20% of the U.S. wealth and income to all the way up to 51% that they hold as of 2013. In that same timeline, the middle class has gone from 9% to 15%, and the lowest, poorest 50% of families has gone from 1% to 1%. Gotcha. Do, do those numbers jump out at you at all? Do, are, you, are you shocked by them? So that is that is a little bit shocking. It is uh, it, it definitely jumps out at you, but I think that there's a certain hole that people fall down with this. I just want to point out, you know, I would remind the audience, would you rather live in a nation where the poor starved and the richest people made millions of dollars or a country where the poor did pretty okay and the richest people made tens of millions of dollars? Because in the first situation, the gap is smaller, right? Those people are closer. In the second situation, that's a bigger gap. You know, I think there are definitely problems here with income inequality and things that go along of that nature. But 
for me, the issue isn't that the rich make too much. It's that the middle class doesn't have enough disposable income. And it's that the poor class is having too much trouble getting by. You know, I think issues like the wealth gap kind of combine those real issues with emotional issues. And the emotional issues are you hear those statistics and you don't really like that rich smuck and you kind of want to knock them down a few pegs. And I understand where that comes from, but I don't think that's constructive. I think if you want to help out the middle classes and the lower classes, you should look at ways to do that. But as far as just taking it out on Bill Gates, you know, I I, I don't agree with that. You know what I'm saying? Well, to kind of illuminate your point a little bit, it's not that the growth has not happened at all in the lower class. For example, in the the bottom 20% of earners have earned 40% more over the last 40 years since 1979. So roughly 40 years there. So the bottom 20% has gained roughly 39.4% from where they were. Now, there are things like inflation, there are other things to factor in. So it was going to go up a little bit no matter what. But yes, we are bringing up our, our lower class. It's not like we have, we have completely forgotten them. There are programs that help out the lower class, and um, they, they do contribute a lot to tax dollars. I'm not, I'm not going to deny that at all. But when you look at it, 40% growth roughly from the bottom 20% of earners, the top 1% since 1979 has gained 187%. I just think that there's a way to tinker these numbers a little bit and kind of get more growth, A, Stop having that bottom tier, that, that that lower class is subsidized by middle class taxpayers generally, Jared. That burden typically falls to us. I want to raise them out of poverty so that we don't have to subsidize them through food stamps or, or welfare or other programs like that. And I just want to find a way to bring some of that 187% growth from the top 1%. And I want to find a way to affect more middle class families because those who are who affects your purchasing and your consuming. That is the, the, the greatest way upward. They're going to spend the money when they have it. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of the solutions that we're going to talk about today would be good for the upper class too, because they're the ones who, you know, the, the middle class, the lower class, if they had more money, they would spend more money. And then the people at the top, they're the ones who whose stuff is being bought. But another important thing that I want to point out is even though the percent of what of the economy that they're making is falling, wages are not falling. In fact, they've been remarkably stagnant for the last 40 years. In America, they, they've been stagnant. But then in, in countries that you named, Germany and Japan, and this is according to the BBC, uh, wages have been completely stagnant for the last 20 years. I also think it's important to point out that, you know, these other countries aren't necessarily doing better than we are. It's that they're getting caught in a cycle that we've been caught in longer. Does that make sense? Yep. You're just starting to beat that drum, that, that that drum that you hear in American politics where you vilify the lower class for supposedly wanting entitlements and you can't raise the minimum wage, Jared, because businesses would stop hiring. They'd take their business elsewhere. So you, you have this this weird stagnation with wages. It, it's tough for me. Wages wages are a tough thing. In the fight for 15, Jared, I'm, I'm not pro $15 an hour minimum wage. I don't think that you can outright double minimum wage every 15 or 20 years or 10 or 15 years, whatever the cycle is on that. I don't think that you can keep outright doubling it and it not send shockwaves to larger businesses. I do have a solution for that, Jared, though. 
We talked about algorithms in our Bot for Teacher podcast. Uh, so rather than do, you know, this this thing where we, we say you can't raise the minimum wage, you can't raise it, it's too high, you can't go from 7.15 to 15, you can't go from 4 to 7, you're doubling it, how will companies ever adjust? A, they do adjust, but B, rather than have to have to do that, I think there's a way that we can use it through through key performance indicators, like what we have at work. I'm sure smart minds could figure out these indicators. I would like to tie minimum wage directly into economic performance, whether it's a study of the Dow, Wall Street, factoring in a recession if we needed to, not allow it to raise, or if we're in a surplus or, or if we're having different things, there's different ways that you can scale it based on by a computer algorithm. And I think annually we can increase the minimum wage by percentages, you know, 3% or 5%, similar to how you or I would get a raise in our everyday job. And in this scenario, we're not sending shockwaves to big businesses or, or small businesses, more importantly. We're not sending shockwaves by just doubling it every couple of years because two sides are screaming at each other and can't reach a consensus. You know, I think I think I would be on board with that issue with just setting it as as like basically a formula and letting it just be. But before I explain why, let me kind of explain my position on the minimum wage. I I don't really love or hate the minimum wage. I just I just don't think it helps very much. Now, I don't think it hurts as bad as some conservatives say that it's this big fiery apocalypse that's going to happen if you if you raise the minimum wage. But Mike, I mean, we lived through an increase of the minimum wage in Connecticut. And it, it didn't usher in some golden age of prosperity. And it, it didn't cause the economy to stall out and crash. It didn't make much of any difference. You know, the free market adjusts to a blanket increase in wages with a blanket increase in costs. And that's just that's just how it happens, you know? And that's not to say that I think that you're a dummy if you want to keep the minimum wage where it is, or if you want to raise the minimum wage, I get it. You know, things things aren't going the way that we want it to be. Uh, wages aren't growing the way that we want them to. And and I understand that, that your perspective. All I'm saying is, is maybe also look and, and see some of the other issues that maybe we discuss, maybe go discover some other issues on your own, some other ways that might actually help the middle class as well, other than just raising and lowering the minimum wage. Because like I said, I mean, almost everybody... In the audience, I mean, I imagine we've all lived through a minimum wage increase. It it doesn't really help, you know? Yeah, no, we were both working minimum wage jobs at the time that we got that increase, Jared. I think we were both at McDonald's at that time. Dear Lord. Uh, Yeah, it's... When you're when you're at that 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 bottom rung of the ladder, unfortunately, it's tough. It's very hard. I wasn't astronomically more more rich i didn't have a radical amount more money when it was raised in my lifetime and i was i was young i was 18 19 years old that's 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 around my working age and i i didn't suddenly have more money to do stuff but i probably spent significantly more money and invested it back into the economy for sure yeah but the costs went up too um, i remember things got a little bit more expensive after the wages went up did we did we spend more money yeah did we buy more stuff though i don't know no i don't think we did you know what i'm saying that's not these are different questions, but I would be down with your sort of just set it as a formula and let it go just because then we'd stop talking about it. And, and I think that would be for the better and people could move on to other issues that maybe could help the middle and the lower classes a little bit more. I definitely think that would help if, if, if people would, you know, maybe look at some of the issues that we talk about today. We're going to talk about, you know, education reform, daycare, uh, stuff of that nature. We'll hit them real briefly. You know, maybe if people were a little bit more worried about that, 
and things got done on those issues, all of a sudden the middle class would have more disposable income and would be able to buy more stuff, and that would make the economy better. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do think that, and I think there's things that we can do to better bring up the aggregate rather than just raise minimum wage. I want to end the debate, and I think an algorithm is somewhere that meets in the middle where we're not radically rising it to $15 an hour from, what is it, seven fifty, seven fifteen now. So rather than do it that, I think we can just do it incrementally, end the debate, and then I think we can get to talking about other things. I mean, even if we just did that for a 15-year trial, see where we ended up, I, I think it would be better than this cycle we get stuck in where we just scream at each other about, you can't raise it or you have to raise it. How are people going to live? It's just an argument that doesn't advance the dialogue. Yeah, I agree. And especially because, I mean, like we said, we've lived through it. It, it didn't really make the radical change that we all would like. Now, what I do think would make a more radical change is more jobs. You know, when people have more jobs, it creates labor scarcity. And what labor scarcity is basically is where employers know that their employees can just bounce if they want to. Let me um, kind of put together a little example here. So imagine you're working at Walgreens, right? And a CVS opens up across the street. And the CVS says, okay, we need people, we need good people who know how to work in a pharmacy, you know, so we're going to pay them $5 more an hour than they make at Walgreens to come over here to CVS, right? So now you as an employee have in your mind, hey, you know, maybe I'll just head over to CVS. That gives you more leverage, more power. And maybe you do, maybe you go over to CVS, maybe you make more money, and then you have more money to spit back into the economy. And that's a win-win for everybody. Now, what does Walgreens have to do in that situation? Walgreens turns around and they're saying, oh, we're losing all of our best employees to CVS. You know, we have to go ahead and uh, raise our wages. And then they raise their wages. And it's just a cycle that happens over and over again. Now, if we can get unemployment down to really low levels and have good jobs like we had in the manufacturing sector in the 70s, all of a sudden the entire economy is playing that game that I just described. And to me, that would solve a lot of the problems. Does that make yeah. sense? So I'm going to take an opportunity to plug myself here a little bit. I recently started a solar company with my brother, Patriot Solar. You're seeing in other countries, Germany is one of them, hell, China is one of them, where you're seeing radical job growth in renewable energy. Just It doesn't matter if you believe in climate change or not, but there's radical growth and there are things that can be done. It's one of the the fastest growing industries right now. It's it's imperative that we jump on that renewable energy bubble, that we get in on that. There are other countries that are already reaping the benefits. It's either we are going to lag behind in it as a country, as a nation, and then pay somebody 20, 30 years, Germany, China, uh, to teach us how to do these things, or we are going to invest in it and create a job and a labor force that, that can really get behind it. You're seeing radical growth in that industry, unlike any other industry that you're starting to see. There are things that we can do from a jobs and a, and a green energy stance that would put thousands, if not millions of people back to work and having a, having a decent job. Those are middle-class jobs, Jared. Yeah. Actually, I, I do actually agree with you on the... I look at the new tech angle from a, a different perspective than that, although that's a really good perspective to look at it from. But I also look at it from the lowering cost spectrum. So you can increase wages, right? And that increases the amount of disposable income that the middle and the lower class have to spend into the economy, and that makes everything better, right? But what you can also do is you can decrease 
the overhead that middle class and lower class families have to deal with. And I think green energy is actually a really interesting way of doing that because, you know, imagine if everybody was energy independent, you know, and you don't have to buy pay for gas or a power bill. Another one was we recently saw the 3D printing plastic houses that they can make for, for $10,000 in 24 hours. You know, imagine if that was the living situation that most people had. And that was your mortgage. It was $100,000 over 15 years. I don't know what that equates out to, but it is not a lot of money, and that would be fantastic. You know, there's a lot of stuff like that. The self-driving cars. You can you know, imagine a world where instead of having to have a car, you know, it's almost like an Uber service where the cars drive themselves, though, and you just pull out your app and open up and get a self-driving car to come pick you up and drop you off and you pay for that ride, uh, but you're not having to pay a car payment every month. Or the, you know? or the insurance um, for when the car crashes or anything like that. I mean, oh, yeah. A lot less yeah. liability left on you. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think that uh, new technology, we're going to talk a little bit at the end of the episode, but let's go ahead and hit it now. I mean, um, you know, I think that's definitely one way, if we're looking at it from that angle, I mean, new technology can certainly be a, um, you know, almost a... a force multiplier for the middle class and the and the lower class you know and they don't even have to get increases in their wages not that i don't want that but you know you can hit the problem from multiple angles at once and i think that's fantastic well, isn't that kind of how we got to where we were as a nation whether it was building the railroads whether it was constructing a massive highway system whether we as a nation used to be very proud of spearheading that kind of innovation, that kind of technology. And we had a robust middle class as a result of it. I mean, those are those are decent jobs that, that you're giving there. It's not just raising minimum wage to 15. You're you're creating growth and development in, in industries that pay significantly better than than those minimum wage fields. We just we used to not be so afraid of science and technological innovation. The bottom line is, is if we're not at the forefront of, of innovation, then we're paying for it. You, you always do. The nations who aren't doing it, you pay through the nose to have that technology 15, 20 years down the road. Yeah. And I, I'm with you. I hope that, um, you know, Trump goes through with his, his infrastructure bill. I definitely think that it's time we need to uh, improve our infrastructure. I know they're talking about this hyperloop that's going to, you know, connect cities like never before. And I, and I get excited when I talk about that kind of stuff. Uh, any of my coworkers will tell you, I mean, I'm always going on about the, the next and the greatest thing. And, and, and I think you're right. I think there is a certain pride aspect. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on with it. You know, people certainly don't seem to be as, as proud to be as American anymore. Uh, I certainly am. I, I love this country. God bless America. And, um, you know, I think we do stand to gain from getting some of that pride back. And people should be proud to be American. You know, we, uh, you know, we ushered the world into this, into this new century. You know, we were key in throwing down the monarchy. And we did. We beat deforest- deforestation by, um, you know, coming up with oil, we, uh, we, we came, we connected the whole country through railroads. Uh, you know, we should, we should definitely get some of that pride back. Yeah, we were at the forefront of that internet bubble in the late 90s, early 2000s. You had a lot of people make a lot of absurd sums of money from that. Uh, there are definitely things that we can do if we just stopped, stopped fearing this technology. But back to being an American, Jared, I know you're not necessarily an avid sports fan, but I don't think there's anything more American than being a sports fan, Jared. So I did some research into our beloved uh, sports teams and just the things that they do. First of all, to understand it, you just have to understand that tax-exempt status is eligible for organizations like the NFL and NASCAR. It's their league offices, obviously their players, the athletes. 
those are all taxed, but you're losing the revenue to tax the league office and they employ thousands and thousands of people. How in the world does a company that grosses billions of dollars annually in large TV shares, I mean, you pay a million dollars for, or millions of dollars now for an ad in the Super Bowl, Jared, how, how can you be in a tax exempt status from a league office standpoint? Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head. I'm not like a big crazy sports fan, so it's all a little bit beyond me. <laughs> but I definitely, I definitely see where you're coming from. And there's a lot of, uh, of those sort of tax loopholes that probably need to be closed. I heard a NPR interview with uh, a guy that was really, really new his stuff. And he said that, you know, basically, you know, every 40 years or so, they have to go through and, and just kind of restart the tax code because it gets so convoluted, you know, and I think it's definitely time to do that. Uh, but as far as, as, you know, getting more from these people, I think that we, we risk falling into that kind of malice trap that I was talking about before. Now, you know, if you were a senator, right, Senator Mike Mezdez was working on getting a group of people together to bail out the middle class and, and you were going to say, OK, so uh, in order to help the middle class, we're going to do this infrastructure part project and, and, and we're going to get the money by doing something, closing one of those loopholes. You know, I would certainly listen to you. And if it made sense, you know, I would be in. You know, but, you know, I think that to look at these issues, the other part is the more important issue to me. You know, how are we going to help the middle class? Obviously, there's always going to be people who scam on their taxes. I mean, I wish I could. I mean, that would be fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, I guess that's 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 only for certain people who are allowed to do it. But at the same time, it's like, you know what I'm saying? I want the uh, the meat before we go to the potatoes. I want to know how we're going to use the money, because I feel like, you, you know, you take the money. And it goes into the government and it essentially disappears. You know, it never finds its way back to us. It gets sent over to Pakistan to pay for their AK-47s that they'll never turn around and use on us. So you know what I'm I saying? I think it's good to start with the potatoes, Jared. So I'm going to put a bow on these sports things. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's good to start with the potatoes here. So if we're talking about just federal government spending in general on sports stadiums, professional sports stadiums in the U.S., did the research... This was done by the Brookings Institute, which I think is phenomenal. Jared and I both agree on this source. We use it pretty frequently. They have these federal loans that are tax-free, uh, these municipal bonds, right? So the, in order to fund a stadium beyond taxpayers in an individual city footing the bill, you also have these, these federal bonds, these municipal bonds that, that are held as well. Since the year 2000, the revenue lost from these, from these bonds has been $3.7 billion to fund roughly 45 professional stadiums across the MLB, NFL, NBA, and NHL. In addition to that, there are federal subsidies that are baked into there because of the tax-free status and, and other things that they do. That totals out to about $3.2 billion. So since 2000, over 17 years, you've had roughly $7 billion in revenue just go to the wayside. Money that you know, the middle class, the lower class, and I, I know the upper class pays it too, but uh, these are things that you're, you're paying for, you're subsidizing them. And you might say, oh, well, they bring jobs and they, 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 I mean, I love sports. I, I go to games, I pay the absurd ticket price, I'll pay, you know, $10 for a beer. I'm all right with it. I still enjoy going to games. Uh, but the, the revenue, like uh, they did a study in Baltimore, the city of Baltimore, they found that after you subtracted, you know, all of the, the total costs associated with maintaining a stadium, what it costs to to renovate all all of the different things, and then you you have the employees, the revenue, ticket revenue, gate revenue, all of that stuff. Once you balance that out in a city like Baltimore, 
it only equates to about $3 million is generated annually on, on a new stadium. They just did a $200 million renovation to one of their stadiums. $3 million annually is not a great return on a $200 million investment. That's, that's not an end, any industry. Uh, so when you subtract the total expenses. Are you saying that we need to cut bloated government budgets? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I just wanted to frame this. <laughs> yes, I am actually. Because I do. I do think that also. So <laughs> I, I wanted that to thing. frame this in a way that, that, that garnered some outrage. And we sit here and we, we yell about this and we say, well, why are, why are they getting $7 billion over stadiums and, and other tax-exempt status where, where they, they're able to essentially evade taxes and revenue that would essentially go to programs that we need? Well, we don't yell no, about No, we it. don't. The slice of the pie that is, even extrapolated that $7 billion spread out over 17 years, that equates to $412 million a year. That is absolute peanuts in comparison to some of the other things that I have here. In the year 2016, the f- biggest federal tax breaks in the United States, you had $134.6 billion for dividends and capital gains uh, just because they get a lower tax rate and there's ways to evade it and bake, bake it in there. The estimated lost revenue, the, the, the tax break is estimated at $134.6 billion. We also have a deferral for foreign uh, corporations, corporations that are funded from a from another country, National Grid, your automakers, all, all these different things, they get roughly $109 billion a year in tax breaks. In addition to that, the, the number one, I'm not going to gloss over it, number one, $143.8 billion is for employer-paid health care and long-term care insurance. You also have some money tied into $53.5 billion in subsidies for insurance purchases through health benefit exchanges. This is almost a tr- half a trillion dollars here that we've we've just uncovered in these tax breaks alone, Jared. Yeah, and, and you know they're out there. You know I'm not denying that they're out there, and you're absolutely right. And, and I could see getting that money and using it towards, say, reducing the deficit, and I'd be pro that. But you know, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna run into into education, and I'll bring it back around to this. And it's going to make sense at the end, so just bear with me here for a second. I think that, you know, a great way to increase the amount of money that the middle class has is to, I mean, really take a look at the way that we do college in this country and the way that we pay for college in this country. You know what I think happens is there's, there's this cycle, and with the cycle, basically, you, you give 18-year-old kids unlimited amount of money to go to school and you encourage them to go out of state, you encourage them to go live there, you encourage them to spend this, all this money, and they don't have any, any concept of it. And, and how could they? You know, they just got out of high school. And, you know, the, the average tuition cost for students attending a public two-year college, so this is, you know, just one semester, or two semesters, is uh, $3,260 compared to about $9,000 for an in-state student at a four-year public institution. I mean, this is the, the amount of money that these people spend. It, it's crazy the amount of debt that people go up in, that kids go up in. And now I, I think we should use community colleges as a model. I don't understand why you can't get a four-year degree from a community college-type institute with those kinds of costs. But instead, like I said, you, you give these 18-year-old kids all this money, and then they go to colleges and they tour them. And of course, the colleges, in order to attract the best students, have to have all the bells and whistles. You know, it makes perfect sense. You know, the kids want to go where they have all the cool stuff and the big sports teams and, you know, all this fancy planetarium, whatever you want. 
And so they drive their costs up to have the newest, the greatest, and the, the latest. And then the kids just borrow more. And now kids are, are more and more in debt. And, you know, the inflation rate for school is, is like 200%. It's insane. Now, I think that we need to look at that. We need to reform that system. So now, if you came to me with just one of the loopholes that you pointed out, and you're like, okay, you know, Senator Kudamash, uh, let's let's sit down and talk. I want to talk about college reform and getting a lot of extra money into the pockets of the middle class to spend into the economy. So, you know, I'd sit down, I'd watch your PowerPoint presentation. And then at the end, when you got to how we're going to pay for it, you know, you would really get me if you were talking about how cutting, you know, bloated budgets. You know, that's definitely my language. But even some of the other ones that you talked about, you know, as a conservative, if you're talking about something that makes good economic sense and this is how we're going to pay for it, then I'll listen. But I feel like a lot of times, you know, if we're just going after him to go after him, you know, I, I just don't I just it doesn't it doesn't get my juices going. Does yeah, make, Jared, you know trust me, I get what you're saying. And that's why when I wanted to frame this argument, I really struggled and I didn't want to come at it from a liberal standpoint where I was just attacking the rich. Um, I think in order liberals in order to to have any traction in this fight in this battle for the things that you think are important you have to come to the table with economic things that make sense you have to have a spending cut for every increase that you propose so for example we spent 102 billion dollars in 2015 on education with the deferral of foreign companies the foreign corporations of of income that was 109 billion dollars at that total last year You can temper that. That's where you can reinvest into education or take some of that cost off the books and 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 shift weight there. Just eliminating that tax loophole alone covers education. If you were to make a reform to tax rates and dividends and long term capital gains, if you made an adjustment there, you could fund the energy and environment, science and international affairs budget. In their entirety. So I, there are things that you can do to help balance this budget and whittle this number down. But you got to know the numbers and you got to come to the argument that way. But to highlight on what you said, Jared, it's just irresponsible lending practices. The, the most recent recession was due to the mortgage crisis. And that was totally irresponsible lending to subprime. Uh, it was subprime lending. And it, it, it led to that whole bubble that burst. And it was a massive recession. We grew up in it, Jared. Uh, it definitely affected our lives. Now, the thing with that is, how in the hell do you think that an 18-year-old kid is the most responsible person to lend to? They're, they're not. They're not even close to the most responsible people to lend to. You're not going to tell your child to sign a car loan for a $120,000 car, which is essentially what some of these four-year institutions will cost, you know, at $30,000 a year. You're not going to tell them to, to sign a car loan, a five-year note for a $120,000 car for their first car at 18 years old. You know they'll never be able to pay that back. They, 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 they simply, they won't. You know, you, you, you direct them to a, to a beater car, or, you know, a $6,000 car, an $8,000 car, a $2,000 car. You're going to direct them into something that, yeah, you're still going to get where you need to go with it. But we're not going to just write you a blank check for an absurd amount of money. That's why the interest rates are so high, Jared, is because we expect 18-year-olds are by then 22, 23-year-olds to just all of a sudden make a ton of money and pay these loans back. These loans never get paid back. Yeah, and they're, they're not only 18-year-olds. They're 18-year-olds who may or may not finish college and then may or may not get a good job, a good enough job to pay back the loan when they do finish college. 
And if they can't do either of those things, then, you know, presto change Congratulations, kid. Your life's ruined, you know? It's it's kind of insane, you know, when you think it's about it. It's absolutely you know? irresponsible, Jared. Uh, I, I just, I, it, it's not sound lending practice at all. Yeah. And maybe that wasn't the best example for, um, you know, the cuts or whatever, uh, just because I really do think you could reform education. And, and you know, if you're interested in this, guys, uh, let us know any of these topics and we'll do a whole episode on it. You know, just please let us know and we will. But I think that, you know, education, we could reform and save the government money and make it a lot easier on everybody just because of how bloated and crazy it's gone. Uh, but maybe a, a better idea would be uh, one that you were you were talking to me a little bit about daycare, re- uh, reforming daycare, reducing daycare costs. Do you want to you want to yeah, start? I mean, with, I'm, where does I'm this a parent. We do we do daycare three days a week. I mean, that's 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 about what we can afford with daycare. You're looking at it's 50 bucks a day, 40, 43 dollars a day, if I'm being specific. But I, I to spread that out over a whole week, you're looking well over two hundred dollars uh, a week for just for daycare. And it's it's not the most high end daycare. I mean, they're, they're great people. It's a great staff. I would never disparage them. I think they do a great job. My jo- daughter is very socially uh, active there. It's, it's great. I think they're great. But there some of these are, are much more expensive. If you live in a city or if you live in other places where you, where you maybe can't even get the daycare voucher, uh, you know, I make too much money to qualify for a daycare voucher. So we, we pay that number. $43 a day is pretty steep. And these people should get paid. They absolutely should have the jobs that they have. I'm not saying that the employees here who work there deserve less money. I'm not saying that by any stretch, but it's it's a painful cost as a parent. Yeah, you're damn right. It's painful. We pay about $400 every two weeks. Um, so it is painful. Uh, so the average cost of daycare in the United States is $11,664 per year. That's uh, about $972 a month. But the prices range from $3,582 a year to $18,773 a year. And that's according to the National Association for Child Care Resources and uh, Referral Agency. That is that's very a, wordy. A title. <laughs> that is a that is a long wow. I, th- what would that acronym be? N A C C. You know, I was just going to make a comment that you military guys love your acronyms, and you just proved that point. I was waiting for yours. <laughs> but uh, you know that that's a huge amount of money that is uh, infested in daycare every year, um, and. And as much as I am, you know, pro free market and pro, uh, you know, all that stuff, I'm not saying to get away, get a, get away from from private daycare. I mean, I'm sure that some people would be able to afford it and want to pay for the private daycare. But if you came to me with a proposal that was essentially, hey, we can close one of these these loopholes that you're talking about, or maybe maybe reduce government redundancies, man. Maybe maybe one accounts receivable program. Uh, worked by one accounts receivable department for all government. I mean, I wonder how much money that would save if you reduce those redundancies and you would pay to lower child, early childhood education down to, you know, whatever and make it a, a government program and to pay, you know, these, these early childcare, uh, workers who, I mean, really they do very difficult, very important work and, and are underpaid for them, uh, and, and you could you could give them better jobs and, and you could reduce the burden and that would be on the middle class and the lower class. I mean, I would support legislation like that, uh, you know, if you spelled out the economic gain and, 
you know, showed me how you're going to pay for it. Middle class families, lower class families having an extra $10,000 a year disposable, $11,000 a year, whatever that, that, that number averages out to be. Uh, they're going to reinvest that back in the economy. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting a new car. I'm getting a swimming pool. I'm, I'm, I'm getting something. You know, it, it's not like that money's just lost forever and we're just giving a break and that, that money's not going to find its way back into the economy. It's just something that I that I do think makes a lot of sense. And maybe it's because I have a child who's <laughs> who goes to daycare. But uh, yeah, I mean, those are the, the type of things that we could look for. I mean, that's the I, I just think it makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't so much be an entitlement program. I mean, I guess in the same respect that public schooling is an entitlement program, really, it would just be extending uh, public school down a few ages and making it optional for parents who want to do it. But I mean, I can tell you for sure I would buy way more things if I didn't have to pay, you know, $800 a month for daycare. I'm just saying I would buy more things. Uh, you know, I'd buy her more things. I'd buy me more things. It wouldn't just be a matter of spending more money. It would be and you know, that that's good for the economy. Not just me, everybody. All these people are spending more money. And that's exactly uh, that's exactly what we need. That's how we get things moving up. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, to me, it's a it, it, it's a pretty simple solution and there is plenty of waste in government and federal spending where you could do something like that and have it not radically affect the budget if at all yeah absolutely speaking Spend of cutting government spending jared i know this may be a tough one to talk about with you but i'm gonna bring it up here and again i think it's it's definitely one that has its own separate cast or several casts uh, we're gonna talk about military spending here that equates for $609 billion out of the 2015 federal budget. Is there any way that we can reduce that budget and still be just about as secure as we are now? I'm not saying to drop it all the way down to $100 billion. That's absolutely insane. But are, are there things that we can do to clean up efficiency in the military? It's just a large chunk of the pie. Yeah. You know, if I had my way, there's definitely a few things that we would cut. Starting first and foremost in Europe, and I'm breaking my own rule with the malice here a little bit, but I am so tired of hearing about European countries and how they have, oh, they have it so much better than we do and, and this, that, and the other thing. And we're paying their defense bill. That's why it's so bloated, because we, we cover NATO. You know what? I'm done with that. First and foremost, first thing that I do as president is I'm pulling my military out of Europe. You can handle your own defense, your big countries. You know, there's Russia. Is that your is that your big, oh, scary? I mean, you're Europe. The entirety of Europe can easily beat Russia if it wants to. It's just letting us cover the military spending. And, and I'm done with that. So that would be the first thing I do. I mean, we got bases that cost a million dollars a day to run in Europe. That's done. That's over. We're, those are coming home. Same with places in Asia, Japan. They don't really want us in Okinawa before. Not spiteful thing. I mean, I, I love the Japanese and I think we have a fantastic relationship, but I don't understand why we keep bases there. We got aircraft carriers. Pull out of there, bring all the troops home. We don't even have to cut personnel. My big thing is, is shutting down bases and we're not going to pay other countries defense budgets especially countries that criticize us all the time because of yeah, our policies. I mean, I, no way i'm for definitely reducing the budget and again i i would leave some of those higher end bases even the million dollar a day ones in strategic locations you don't want to leave yourself completely defenseless but i mean we equate to something like 40 percent of the world's total military spending we are team america world police through and through. We should absolutely not be covering everybody's military budget, and we shouldn't be intervening in every skirmish that we can find some profit in for, for big businesses back home. It's just absolutely asinine in policy. 
I don't think there's a lot of profit in it in general. I mean, um, you know, people say that that we're all, always out for a profit, but I mean, these wars come at a cost, in my opinion. Now, they only cost. Uh, the days of, of making money off of war are past. Halliburton didn't make a ton of money off of war? One one company, sure, but the entire country didn't, you know? No, no, yeah, I don't think it's a, a boon to Americans at all. I just, I mean, in general, there are there are interests that want to be involved in every skirmish because they can profit from it, that's all. I'm not saying the U.S. thinks for a second that they'll profit from it. I don't think that that's the case. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but I, I would pull back, you know, like, like Denmark as an example. Oh, Denmark, they hardly even spend any money on defense and they have all these cool social programs and nobody's hungry and everything's wonderful. They can only be that way because of NATO, because we protect them. You know, it's because if, 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 you know, somebody was feeling squirrely and invaded Denmark, then America would step in. You know, I'm just tired of it. You know, I'm tired of these countries. Uh, just living off of us, and then they criticize us for being a world police, but they're the ones that benefit from it. I'm just tired of it. I've said before, I'm a bit of an isolationist. You know, it's 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 true. I mean, I think it's time to pull back on on all of that spending. Uh, what I would want to do instead is is I would pull the military back, uh, and I would make cuts on those bases, and I would bring them home, and I would spend my my military would spend its time and energy on new technology. We would figure out how to use tactics regarding new technologies because that's how wars are won now. Look back at World War I. The first commanders who figured out how to use a machine gun as not a rifle, as its own thing, had huge advantages. The first commanders to figure out how to use artillery as artillery and not as a, a rifle. I mean, they always use it as a rifle. I mean, Hitler was the first one to figure out how to use a tank as a tank and not as a rifle. I mean, that's all they do. And that's why, why Blitzkrieg was so effective. In my military, we would cut spending because we wouldn't be in other countries. I mean, yeah, we would still have some bases open in, uh, in the Middle East especially. But, I mean, certainly not in Europe. They don't need our help. And we would instead use that, uh, that money to come up with new tactics, to come up with new technology. And just everybody would know, okay, if you mess with America, that's it. You know, there's nothing, nothing you can do. Well, I think that the world already knows that for the most part. But even, folks, we're not talking like a radical step down of the military. If we were to just reduce that $610 billion a year, if we were to reduce that number by 10%, you'd cover the entire housing and community budget that we had for the 2015 fiscal year. Literally the entire thing. So all these entitlement programs, however you want to phrase them, that would make that entire program solvent as well. So there are there are real life solutions to some of these things and ways to balance the budget where you make a few cuts here on either side that aren't radical. Just small concessions here and there rather than finger pointing. But some of this does deter a little bit from the point. Uh, we did want to focus a bit on the budget here. And I do think like reduction in military spending, I do think education reform for upward mobility will definitely help the middle class, lower class get to where they need to go. Uh, investing in newer tech, jobs. I mean, just to cap it, that's kind of why we've gone this direction with it. I'm not just saying make the rich give up X amount of dollars to the middle and lower classes. I'm, I'm not framing the argument that way. I think there are real life solutions that we can do in each of these areas. And cumulatively, this will help bridge some of that wage gap that we have today. But Jared, I do know that you were very passionate about an idea that you had here. And I'm going to let you roll into it here. You had an idea about uh, restricting free trade agreements and how that can benefit the middle and lower classes as well. Tell me more about that. 
Yeah, I am just absolutely tired of these free trade agreements with third world countries. And like I said, this comes back to me being a bit of an isolationist. But, you know, we're a big country and, and they say globalization is important. You know, I think that we can uh, mimic a globalized economy within the U.S. That being said, of course, I would support having a free trade agreement with Canada. Uh, of course, I would uh, support it with Germany, with other first world countries, and even countries like Mexico, who have always been steadfast allies to ours, minus that whole Alamo thing. But in recent history, you know, they, you know, kind of helped us out in the in the world wars, at least by, um, you know, letting us know when people are trying to be shady behind our backs. And they just sent a ton of supplies over for Hurricane Harvey, too. So they've always been there. They were there for Katrina as well. Yeah, yeah. And they... They're good allies. I think that the, the uh, Mexico and America, you know, we're going through a bit of a rush patch now, but I think, you know, Mexico is, is um, it's not, I'm not talking about Mexico is what I'm saying. <laughs> but what I, what I want to do is, 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 you know, you have these free trade agreements and what you're doing is you're pitting the American worker against somebody who's willing to work for a nickel a day. And then people are telling me that, you know, it's, it doesn't just help out the upper class, the people who are paying the, the wages, you know, and of course it does. Of course it does. And like I said, I'm, I'm pro, you know, helping out the upper class when, when it makes sense. But I'm reasonable, too. And I think that this is an issue where, you know, you can make a legislative decision that would negatively impact the upper class and help out everybody else. And I would be OK with it because I just think that these free trade agreements are absolutely rotting out the American infrastructure. And it's not like we're helping out these third world countries. I mean, they're putting these kids to work. You know, sweatshops, people aren't allowed to quit their jobs. They're being beaten at their jobs trying to produce this stuff for us to take. I mean, it's it's a lose, lose, lose situation. And the only one that ones that are making out well are the people sitting at the very top. And I know, you know, Trump killed the trade agreement with Korea there. What was that? The TTP? Yep. But you know who else said they were going to kill that was Hillary Clinton. And if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, you should look up what he has to say about the free trade agreements because he does not pull his punches. He is worse. He hates them more than I do. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, liberals, it, it's something that we can we can easily rally behind. I mean, some people might support it because, you know, Bill Clinton supported a massive free trade agreement. So we say, oh, that was great. And it galvanized the economy. It uh, really got us going in the late 90s. Yeah, I guess, but what you saw out of that is it's a mixed picture. A, nobody likes these, this forced labor for a nickel a day in China, Taiwan, some of these countries. Nobody supports child labor. I mean, we, we're, you're essentially endorsing that with some of these free trade agreements. In addition to that, uh, you're just strengthening your major corporations in the, in the country. You're strengthening companies like Walmart or, you know, even Amazon's on the uptick with stuff of that. They import a lot, a lot of goods that are, that are made with really cheap labor. You know, not supporting a, a free trade agreement, you, you can still have your liberal card and not support a free trade agreement, all right? Uh, you can still fall on that side of the argument. That's something that we can sit down and say, hey, you know what? Maybe these aren't the best things for American people, American workers, and foreign workers, and people who are, who are suffering to, to make these goods. And in defense of the businesses, what choice do they have? You know, we signed these free trade agreements. I mean, if I told you that we're going to create a new state, say a big chunk of land pops out of the ocean off the shore of Delaware, okay? Would you be okay with having that country not pay taxes, be able to import to everywhere in the country, not have a minimum wage, and not have child labor laws? Of course not. 
And that's that's essentially what you have is you have a country that has all the benefits of statehood with regards to importing and exporting, doesn't pay any taxes, doesn't have child labor laws, doesn't have a minimum wage. I mean, I don't understand how you can, especially liberals, but, you know, conservatives, too, how does anybody really thinks about this and looks at the data and says, uh, you know, it's, all I'm saying is take another look, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I would revisit free trade agreements. I wouldn't say get rid of them altogether, but they definitely should be. They're heavily tilted, and it's it's not in our favor. It's definitely in big business's favor, though. That's the thing. That's why these things get passed, you guys. You know, they make up these myths, or you know, this will do this, or this will do that. Yeah, it, it might lower the cost of goods, and you're not wrong on that. But it exploits child labor. It exploits unfair things happening to workers and it just absolutely drops a bombshell on american workers because how the hell can we compete with those wages how, how can we lobby for higher wages when there's countries that are doing the same thing for a fraction of the price it's just not an advantageous position for us to be in they're terrible a small fraction of the price like real little i mean literally doing it for 10 cents on the dollar yeah yeah i mean nothing and and they're being exploited over there too. I mean, it's not like they're like, "Whoa, we're making out great over here." You know, it's it's that's not how it's working. It's the only countries that are making out really well would be countries like China. Look at the pollution issue there, and then also, I mean, I mean, talk about a country that does not back us up internationally anymore. You know? Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely not wrong. I I just think there's a better way to approach free trade agreements and. I think necessarily having them more. I'm a Bernie supporter. Bernie hates him. So I tend to get in that camp of throwing punches against him as well. I just, I don't think they benefit Americans at all. Much like being in Europe and paying their defense bill doesn't benefit Americans at all. It doesn't help us any. Um, And again, it just aggregates more money to that top, top tier. And I think this is important to point out. I mean, uh, you know, you're a big Bernie guy. Bernie hates him and and you don't like him. But I'm a big Gary Johnson guy and Gary Johnson loves him. And um, I don't. You know, and that's fine. Yeah, I still like Gary Johnson. You know, you can you can break from these people if you want to on issues. Nobody came and took my Gary Johnson card away. You know, <laughs> um, I, I I can break from him if I want to. It's it's not the end of the world. I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> so I did some digging around, Jared, similar to how we started off the podcast here, and I just got countries that were similar to us. I couldn't find an infographic with the exact same, but again, this is U.S. Uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, so I wanted to keep it that's the same source where I got the other ones. It's just a different sect of data. I have Japan, Britain, Australia, Canada, and the U.S. This is what CEOs are paid in this country versus in other countries. So for every $1 that they make, what their workers make in relation to it, or not their workers directly, like what the average worker in the U.S. makes. In Japan, that number is at 67 to 1. In Britain, it's 84 to 1. Australia, it's 93 to 1. In Canada, it's 206 to 1. Uh, it should go without saying that the CEO is the higher number in the equation. Jared, what do you think it is in the United States? Keep in mind, Canada is double the third highest in Australia. Just because I hate it when uh, people guess ridiculously high when I'm trying to make these points, I'm going to say, I don't know, maybe an average. How about uh, 50 to 1? 354 to 1 is what the average worker is paid uh, as opposed to what CEO salaries are in this country. It's just nowhere close. Canada's most similar to us. They pay nearly half of what we pay to their CEO. Britain pays a quarter of what we pay. I think there are ways that we can scale this down. I'm not saying to 
slash the United States CEO pay to, to, to Britain's rate and be 84 to 1 and cut it by 75%. But I think we could certainly quarter that number. And some of the ideas that I have is I just think that, you know, companies over a certain size. So I want to make it very clear. I don't ever want to affect small and medium sized businesses with these policies. So I, I think there's a number that you can aggregate and just, again, use advanced metrics and algorithms. I think there's a number that you can finalize for how many workers you employ, what the average pay is. I, I think there's a way that you can balance that out. But for companies over a certain size, Walmart, stuff like that, I just have less than no sympathy for them. You should have to invest that money back into your workforce somehow, whether it's through benefits, uh, through college programs. Uh, you know, Verizon offered $8,000 a year, which I thought was terrific in tuition assistance. What if we did something like that for Walmart? Or, you know, there are different ways that we can scale it that maybe directly doesn't have to be cash that's paid out to the workers. But CEOs, CFOs, these people, I understand that they do a hard job, but nobody else is getting paid in the world anywhere near what they're getting paid in this country. Yeah, I mean, I see where you're coming from. So you're kind of, um, I'm going to help you pop it up a little bit before before I bring it down and, and really tell you my opinions on it. But so you're saying like, for like a CEO to give himself a raise, he would have to give his workers a raise essentially, right? Like he would have to keep it like something reasonable, you know, maybe a hundred to one. I think it'd be a, should be a certain percentage of profits. Whatever that percentage of profits is essentially what a CEO should be able to make. X amount should be reinvested back into the workforce. I think there should be, I'm not saying literally break down a pie chart for every area of how a business operates. All I'm saying is make a make a scale for the very top end of the spectrum and make a scale for the very bottom end of the spectrum. The people who you know are actually on the floor and working for you, they should get X percentage of profits and the CEO should get X percentage as well or Y percentage, however you phrase that. Just find a way to kind of balance the scales a little bit at the top and bottom end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And then people might be a little bit more interested in, um, you know, global trade, like the thing that I'm talking about with uh, killing free trade agreements. Yeah, they do bring in a lot of profits, but, you know, maybe workers would be a little bit more interested in in free trade if they they stood to gain something. But, I mean, our our wages haven't gone up in 40 years, so what do we care, you know? But, yeah, so uh, really, though, I got, I got to tell you, this this is not an issue that's that's really close to my heart. You know, I, I just got a couple problems with it. You know, first, would capping CEO pay, I mean, you know, how would it work exactly? I mean, it's it would be complicated legislation. You would come up against a lot of resistance on this one. Uh, whereas I think some of the other ones, you would see way less resistance on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, trust me, it's not a fully ironed out idea, but do you not see any sort of issue with the gap just in relation to what other countries pay? I mean, I see it. I think that they've been uh, they've been out of we've been in the um, the free trade agreement cycle longer. And I think that's exactly what it is. You know, they uh, you know, American companies are paying more workers a nickel a day in third world countries because they have these free trade agreements and other countries haven't got around to it. Um, but I think that's a big part of it, you know? Yeah, I get it for a nickel a day. But even in the U.S., that, that, that gap just keeps growing every year versus what CEOs are paid versus what they're, what, what workers are paid in general. It's, it's, it's just an, a, a crazy sum. When you look at, you know, we did this to kind of build up some of it, Jared, just to frame it up. I mean, we, we did a lot of this cast on just trying to figure out different ways to, to bring the lower and middle class up and all of that is well and fine. But this is really the only major haircut that I have towards that top one, top 20% or top 10% rather. And it, it, it's not an ironed out idea. I just think there has to be some way that we can close that gap. 
And and I feel you, and and I I would definitely say in like an ideal world, I I would get what you're saying is I just, I just don't see how we could make it happen. You know, I I wonder if if you cut the CEO's pay, would that money go back to the workers, or or would that go to capital gains? Would that go to back to the investors? Would that even be bad? I mean, that would go to retirees too, right? Not just the richest people. I I don't know really. But I mean, it, it's a hard one. It depends on how it was all put together. I guess is is what I'm saying. Whether or not it pays off. I, it's definitely a, an iffy issue for me, but I definitely agree with the spirit of it. You know what I'm saying? I just don't know how we could make it happen. <laughs> it's tough. I mean, uh, there's just so many loopholes and in, in ways that people are able to exploit our system. Um, and I, I think tax reform is, is a big portion of this. And I think if you close some of those capital gains and dividends, uh, start putting different taxes on Wall Street in different ways to affect people who are, who are trading in mass. I'm not talking about, you know, you, the guy with 100 stock shares and, you know, a, a company stock. I'm talking about the guys who are trading 10,000 stocks at a time, 100,000 shares at any given time. There are ways to reform some of these numbers. And I, I admit to you, my CEO one isn't as ironed out as I'd like it to be. I just, I can't find a way to re... <laughs> redistribute that money yeah and i'm not saying that you didn't do your homework i'm just saying that this is a a very messy issue (laughs) um and and when you talk about capital gains it reminds me you remember that commercial where it was like the little old lady and she's like oh no they're gonna increase capital gains that's our retirement you like my old lady impression yeah it was a really good you should try acting jared um i don't know if you know this but mary writes uh plays so you know, maybe she could find like a one-man show for you. I think you'd you'd be great for it. <laughs> I thought this was a fun show to do. Uh, I think this really just covered a lot of different topics as we researched it. This was one of the the strangest unfolding of topics that we had, but we really try to make it a point here to just not come at this from a from a yelling perspective. We tried not to spew a lot of these talking points you hear with the wealth gap. Neither was really disparage minimum wage or, or any of the yelling points. And that's kind of the point of this is I think there are ways that you can close the wealth gap. And Jared does too. And that's why we sat here and we, we came up with things on jobs, tax reform, education reform, CEO pay, free trade agreements, daycare. There are a bunch of things that we covered here. Feel free to let us know if you want us to expand on any of these. But I... Uh, I think there are multiple ways to attack an issue, and, and that's that's kind of what we've, we've learned through doing this. So this was a wicked fun one for us to do. Let us know what you guys want us to do next or what kind of topics would interest you, and we'll do our best to research them and give you the best possible show. We thank you. Reach out to us on Facebook. On Instagram seems to have the most traction lately, but i be honest, I still don't have a clue how it works. Um, there's also Twitter. Feel free to reach out to Mary on that because you know Jared and I are not smart enough to operate those vehicles. Just let us know what you think and where we should go. And uh, it's been a lot of fun doing this, Jared. Let's get at it again next week. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, absolutely. And before we go, I just want to do a real quick shout out to our tech guru, uh, Mary Darling, behind the scenes, making all of our social media work and uh, editing the episodes and doing all that stuff. Thanks again. Have a great night, guys.